G'day guys and welcome to episode 2 of Chewing the Fat with CB and JY. I am Chris Bryson and it is a pleasure to be joined by James Young today. How are you going JY? Hey Chris, how are you mate? It's a pleasure to be chatting to you again this week. I'm, uh, I'm very well, thanks mate. I just want to do give a quick shout out to our sponsors before we get started. Oh, no, we actually don't have we a sponsor. We don't have a sponsor. <laughs> if you want to sponsor us, please slide into our DMs on, uh, on Instagram. Always slide into the DMs. <laughs> um, quick shout out as well to our good friend Alex Cameron. Now, Alex Cameron AC did the graphic design for our logo for the podcast and she did an absolutely fantastic job. So if anyone needs any graphic design work done, um, hit us up or hit up Alex Cameron AC23 on Instagram. Um, really, really good job. Appreciate it. AC. Thank you, bro. Um, and also, thanks to all the listeners uh, for their feedback from that uh, first episode of ours last week. Um, we had some... Very positive feedback. We had uh, some listeners from all over both Australia and the rest of the world. Five countries. We hit JY. Please. We hit JY. Um, the UK, the USA, France, and Iraq, and as well as obviously Australia. So we are trending globally. If you are that one Iraqi <laughs> listener, please get in touch with us. We would love to have you on the pod. Um, we are... Uh, we're absolutely honoured to have uh, reached so far across the globe. As excited as I am to have uh, hit global trending status in Iraq and Paris, um, we've got eight five-star reviews and one four-star review. Now, whoever given us four-star, I'm pretty disappointed, J.Y. Um, yeah. You know, we're, we're perfectionists. Yeah. Um, we're really fun about that. It's kept me up all week. Yeah. Yeah. Um, please, please give us five stars. Yeah. So, if you can go back and change that review, um, that would be great because, uh, yeah, it's keeping us up at night and, uh, as we know, we need our sleep to uh, – well, Chris needs his sleep to look this good. I don't need to uh, worry too much. How's your week been otherwise, J.Y.? Mate, I'm going to be honest with you. Uh, some breaking news for the pod. I've been a little bit sick. I've been a little bit sick. I uh, Thank God this is a Zoom chat, not in person. Yes, yes. I know, right? Yeah, and, COVID. What's, what's well, going? look, honestly, I've been uh, I've been feeling a bit sick. Sick of winning because <laughs> the Bulldogs are now two in a row. We had Aaron Norton step up last week after I pumped him up on the podcast. So not only did I give a uh, little shout out to the astronaut, but he then goes and does one better and kicks six uh, about... Three hours after I pumped him up. So, Aaron, if you're listening... Actually, you know what? Aaron, big fan of the podcast. He probably is listening. He actually is a big fan. So, um, you know, thank yeah, you for sure. that, mate. I'm, uh, I'm glad that I could help motivate you there. Um, and then yesterday, Mitch Wallace goes on a tear and kicks four against uh, the finals hungry D's. So, mate, at the moment, it's the question is... Not only who can stop our podcast from, uh, you know, reaching the top of the uh, <laughs> iTunes charts, but who can stop the Bulldogs? Because at the moment we're looking, uh, we're looking pretty good. Mitch Wallace is another big fan of the show. I hear um, the poodle. I watched a little video of him. His, uh, his new young daughter and his missus are just joining up in the in hub life. Checking that settled him down a little bit, mate. Mate, they've, they've, uh, they've been calling him the Dilf. So I uh, I am quite sure that the Dilf. Um, yeah, it took me a minute. Yeah, uh, <laughs> I was going to say, you know, just looking at your face, there, mate, you look a little bit lost. <laughs> no, I'm with you. Um, but the uh, yeah, the Dilf himself. Um, I just think he's uh, he's born to play that mid-sized forward role, and um, he's probably looking like a lock for the All Australian, just like uh, twenty-one other Bulldogs. Look, all this Bulldogs talk, Joe. Well, I've actually got a question for you. Please, so I um, I found out some interesting information. Oh, okay. As you know, um, physiotherapy is still essential. I'm still been coming to work every day, which I'm very grateful for to have a successful business um, during lockdown in Melbourne. Very successful business. My, uh, my favourite client this week was actually someone very close to you, mate. Um, your lovely mother, Susan. Ah, yes. And she told me two little, uh, very interesting bits of information. All this Bulldogs talk, James, and and after all these years of knowing you, I find out this week you were actually born in Geelong. One of my deepest, darkest secrets, mate. Oh. And I'll, uh, God bless my mum, love her cotton socks, but uh, that's a secret that uh, she didn't need to reveal and has definitely, um, yeah, I definitely have to have a chat with her. You'll have to have a chat with whoever can you barrack for the Bulldogs because you made a poor decision based on where you grew up. Well, actually, the reason that I barrack for the Bulldogs is because my great-grandfather, Roy Williams, played in the reserves flag back in the, uh, in the 1950s. So, you know... Do you want to pick that up, mate? That name you just dropped? Roy Williams. Roy Williams. I, um, I give a shout-out to him. But, he, uh, no, he, he played in the uh, 1950s reserves flag, so we, um, okay. we have a bit of Bulldogs pedigree in our family, but my entire... 
dad's side all uh, went for Hawthorne. So throughout the, um, what was it, the 2008 to sort of 2015 period, uh, pre-2016, but less said about that the better because I'll go on for hours, um, the, uh, the my, my sort of footballing, uh, well, it was looking a bit grim for me. My family had seen four flags. Um, I had seen three prelim knockouts and a rebuild or two, and uh, things were looking a bit uh, dark. So I um, I think in the end I made the right choice because we're probably going to win five of the next six or seven. So, you know, that'll overtake the Hawks. Um, and, it's uh, yeah, it's all looking pretty rosy. But, mate, like, I, I'm, I'm here talking about my Bulldogs. Surely the Cats are... Uh, the Cats are going to face off against the Dogs. They're looking the uh, second-best team at the moment. Well, if Aaron Norton kicked six goals against Adelaide last week, so surely this Arthur Adeglia can, can do the same and put a smile on my face today. Well, mate, I... Uh, I, I know this, um, this episode is released midweek, but we do film on a... We'll record on a Sunday morning. So, so um, just so you know, this this, this reference is... Just before, just before the uh, Bulldogs... Sorry, the Bulldogs... I can't stop talking about it. Uh, <laughs> before the Cats-Crows game this afternoon, um, you'll be eating your words if you lose to the Crows, though, Chris. Uh, I will be. Tex Walker's 200th makes me a little bit nervous. Oh, mate. Is that enough yeah, to, 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 to get perfect, one win of the season? Perfect game to release Jerker. Get uh, Joshy Jenkins up in the forward line and uh, you know let him uh, run right against his old squad. He could be another Stuart Cramer just one season on the list as a backup key forward. And there have been a few of those with the Cats. We're gonna have to do a whole <laughs> podcast on footy. I feel like this is it might be coming up. <laughs> we are. We're gonna have to do an episode because today we have a pretty important topic that we want to talk about, Chris. Um, the uh, the topic today that we're going to focus on is uh, training with injuries and you know a general discussion behind pain and dealing with injuries. So you know it, it leads me to um, it leads me to an important uh, question here that's been paining me actually, <laughs> and that is that Chris Bryson doesn't drink coffee. So well, that's actually not a question; that's a statement. So that is a statement, but. It still pains me. So before we get into the deep, uh, the deep nitty gritty about pain itself, um, can you please uh, alleviate my pain and tell the listeners why you don't drink coffee? Well, I've got a few things, a few ways to explain this. Um, first of all, I do have the taste buds of a child. Which We've been over this. We've been through this. Everyone's well aware of this now. Um, no, but in all seriousness, coffee is definitely an acquired taste. It's something you've got to force yourself to enjoy, and I. You know, obviously had a few sips of it here and there, you know, whenever everyone does and didn't actually like the taste. And I thought I had two choices, JY. I can force myself to like the taste to fit into society's norms and, you know, all that sort of stuff and then spend how many dollars every single week um, on coffee that I could be saving and, you know, sort of create a caffeine addiction or reliance. Or I could just go against the norms and not like it. Yeah. Um, so I save a whole lot of money and I don't put as much caffeine into my system as the rest of society. I'm not against the uh, norms there, Chris. That's, um, well... Why am I surprised? Um, look, I'm not saying coffee's bad. I feel a lot of people love coffee, but it's got to be one of the things that are most overrated on the planet. Well, you know, I'm uh, sitting here in my office uh, drinking my uh, my long black, or my last triple shot long black, courtesy of the townhouse on Hampton Street. So, quick shout out to the townhouse. Carl and Jim down there doing Please a great job. <laughs> if you actually you know what, I did speak to Carl this morning, so he said he's going to have a listen. Um, the, man, uh, the man could be getting in touch very shortly. Do they so. do a good ice chocolate? Uh, yes, but they only give those to 12-year-olds, so, you know. There is nothing wrong with being 29 years old and male and ordering a nice chocolate at a cafe. I'm no, mate, but it's it. just, it's the, it's the sort of the culmination of your, uh, little idiosyncrasies here. We've got no mushrooms, no onions, none of this shit, and then now you're telling me that you don't drink coffee. Well, sorry, I got confused because you're one of four people that I'm close to that doesn't drink coffee, and... Can't be that confusing then. No, it is because it confuses me that people don't drink coffee. And I am not relying on coffee. This isn't me saying that coffee is, in a caffeine sense, is a, uh, you know, a must-have for me. It is the enjoyment that I get out of uh, sipping on a long black. And if you want to hear something weird, I like them when they go cold. So, sue me. Oh, my God. I actually um, read The Barefoot Investor in 2017, like every other... White Australian male. And guys, did I not get you onto the bed? No. No, I got you onto the bed. No, no, no. But the reason why Everton got me onto the barefoot investor. What I was going to say is he actually specifically says don't drink coffee because you'll spend your life savings on it every single week. So... I, actually, I remember when uh, when I came to one of your uh, appointments back in 2017 and now I remember I pulled out my orange G card and you went barefoot. 
Yes. In, and then I, yeah, we went on that little tear about barefoot. Scott Pape's actually a really big fan of the show as well. So Mate, yeah, I actually want to get Scotty Pape on the show. <laughs> Scotty Pape would be perfect for this. You can teach him a few lessons, I reckon, mate. Mate, I've, uh, I've got a few lessons to teach him. I, um, I don't know if you've heard of a little thing called Spaceship, but, you know, it's uh, that's something for another day. Just uh, if anybody does know Spaceship, download on the App Store, free money. Um, maybe we'll get Spaceship to, follow, uh, to uh, sponsor us. I actually so, have no idea what that is, but that's okay. We're, we're going to leave it. Off another tangent. We're going to leave it there. We are going to leave it there. Day. So we do have some important topics to discuss today, JY. If you're happy to give the Bulldogs a rest for five minutes, um, as I said, we're we're talking about training with injuries and, and all things pain and injury. Look, I suppose it's putting together my passions, which is you know pain science and, and, and injuries, and your passion being training. So uh, to start off, I want you to tell us, mate, and tell the listeners a little bit about your history with injury because. Obviously, from personal experience, I know that you've had a few along the lines. And the thing about pain and injuries is that you know they can be quite frustrating when they do get in the way of your, I suppose, the things that you love doing and any specific goals that you have. And you know, from your point of view, mate, I know you've you've been a competitive powerlifter, bodybuilder, and and, and C grade footballer in the past. Real competitive powerlifter. Uh, but tell us a bit about your history with injury, mate, and how this has impacted on your training and, and lifestyle in the past. You pumped me up far too much there, mate. Um, wasn't a pump up. That it was a little bit. You said I was competitive, and you know, <laughs> coming seventh uh, is competitive um, in the one comp that I did. The um, <laughs> my no, my injury history. Look, I um, I think most um, most of the injury that I've had over the journey, um, I would probably now being a bit older and a bit wiser, um, but no less, no more mature, um, would say that the uh, the majority of them aren't even injuries. So a lot of the things that I've dealt with have been things such as uh, lower back issues, such as shoulder issues, such as um, hip niggles, um, little issues with ankles, things that hurt, but not necessarily things that are debilitating. And I um, I remember back in 20, uh, 2015, uh, I was bench pressing with Jacob Skeppis. So the, um, the two of us were down at Keeler Road Studio. I was comp prepping for a, um, for a physique comp later that year. And um, as the body fat dropped off, we were trying to keep the strength up, and it uh, it led to me probably pushing it a little bit too hard on some max bench efforts, and I um, I ended up pulling up with a crook shoulder that didn't actually show any symptoms. And I remember you saying this after I saw you a few months later. It didn't show any symptoms for injury, but the 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 shoulder itself Sorry, was. Sorry, it showed symptoms with no signs of structural injury. Yes, yeah, sorry, sorry, symptoms, Let's pain is a symptom, so... Let's just focus on that for Thank you, Chris, for, uh, for, you know, fixing me up there. Sorry, mate, continue. But the, uh, the shoulder itself didn't show any signs of injury, it just yeah. showed, it just hurt. So I was getting, um, getting second, um, you know, I was second guessing how, you know, how injured it was and thinking it was injured and walking around going, oh, I've got a shoulder injury. And earlier, you know, that year I'd also done the exact same thing with a back you know, and I'm doing the inverted commas with my fingers and then a, uh, a back injury, which was, again, no signs of an injury, just pain. Um, and it actually, that shoulder led to me going, um, going down the route of surgery um, for what was called a subacromial decompression, which is an interesting surgery that I'm sure you'll talk about very soon, Chris. I knew, I know you knew this was going to come up, um, which was basically just where they, uh, they shave this. They say that there's no... Space between the uh, the AC joint and the collarbone. Um, am I correct in saying that? I can't remember exactly because this was so, five years ago. So the acromion is the, the bony part on the top of your shoulder, and there's generally about a centimeter of space between that and the ball of your, yep. your shoulder joint, essentially. Yep. So it's it's that space below the bony part on top of your shoulder. And they basically say that that space is gone, so you're bone on bone, and they need to get in there and they need to elevate it and you know, create space basically so that there's movement back in the shoulder because the lack of movement's causing the pain and then it goes on from there. So it, it basically, I'm not going to go on too much more of a tangent here. I just wanted to bring this up, but it basically was a surgery that I now look back on four or five years later and believe that it was completely unnecessary. And so much of the issue that I had was the pain and it was the, Almost the psychological, um, I guess, um, the inability for me to sort of switch off that pain and to be able to look on the, uh, you know, the body as a system and, uh, you know, 
incorporate into that both the way I was feeling mentally at the time, stress levels, issues that I had going on with work and just life in general, and how that impacted the pain. Um, and I've had similar issues with my opposite shoulder, funnily enough, over the last couple of years, mm-hmm. and have been able to manage that since, uh, so that was mid-2018, so I was working with the boys at Strength Culture, so Jamie Smith and, uh, and Big Charles over there, um, and we had absolutely no issues with it. Um, we had a little bit of needle, a bit of pain, exactly the same pain, but absolutely no signs of injury. And knowing what I knew after the first one, I was able to sort of uh, keep my training going and uh, and compete as well um, in a powerlifting comp. And um, I have spoken to you since then about pain, and you are a man who, you know, is just you know very very deep into the uh, the world of pain science. Why do things hurt, Chris? Why do we actually have pain? Um, it's a fantastic question. and It's something that still baffles me, the lack of knowledge that we as a society actually have about why things hurt and how pain actually works. And it's something that I think should be taught in high schools, to be brutally honest, because it, it still it literally blows my mind every week the amount of people that I see in my clinic who have seen multiple physios or osteos or chiros or doctors or specialists or whatever in the past for either multiple injuries or one specific injury, and no one's ever actually explained to them how pain works. So let's find out, hey? Yeah. Um, so pain, the first thing we need to know is pain is at all times produced by our central nervous system. Now, for those who aren't aware, your central nervous system is made up of your brain and your spinal cord. So pain is at all times an output from these structures rather than actually produced by the tissues that we feel them in. So what do I mean by that? The most common example that I like to use in the clinic is have you ever stubbed your toe, J.Y.? Mm-hmm. Yeah, everyone has right? So when you stub your toe, what happens is your toe, there's these little nerve endings in the end of your toe, which will signal that I've just hit the coffee table. And those nerve endings will send a signal all out your leg, up your spinal cord to your brain and say, essentially, hey brain, this has just happened, what do you reckon? Okay, it's then up to your brain, completely subconsciously, mind you, to determine whether there's actually been any tissue damage that has occurred, or if there hasn't been tissue damage that has occurred, is there the potential for tissue damage to occur? Is there some sort of threat to the body by this action? And if your brain and your nervous system concludes that one of these two things are the case and that we need protecting, it will produce a pain signal, and you'll get a signal that gets sent back down from your brain to your spinal cord, to all the nerves in your leg, to your big toe, and it'll say, bang, pain, Okay. Now, if you notice when you've stubbed your toe, JY, that it sort of takes half a second for that pain to kick in, mm-hmm. yeah? you sort of stub it, you're like, oh, this is going to hurt, and then a split second later, it does. Yeah. The reason why there's that slight delay is because that's the furthest point away from your brain, and that whole process takes a fraction of a second to occur, okay? And this is the same all throughout our body, right? If we you know, have a bit of a sore back, it's not because our back is producing the pain, it's because you might be, I don't know, bending over, vacuuming the house in the awkward position for 20 minutes and the nerves in your back are constantly sending signals to your brain to say, hey, I'm in this position, hey, this is going on, hey, what do you reckon? And it might get to a point in time after 15 or 20 minutes of vacuuming, just as one example, that your brain says, you know what, I'm a bit threatened by this, so I think we need to change positions or do something about this and it will produce back pain because it's threatened by that position, right? Same deal if you're if a shark bites your arm off, right? Your arm sends a signal up your arm to your shoulder to your brain and says, hey, brain, guess what? Just lost my elbow to a shark. Your brain goes, shit, that's horrible, and we'll send back a hell of a lot of pain because there's a significant amount of tissue damage. And this happens, you know, all throughout our body, all throughout their day. Um, and as I said, it's always produced by your nervous system. And I suppose the reason why this is important to know is that there are so many different things that influence the pain that we feel, okay? There's so many different facets to pain. And because pain is a production of your nervous system, it's not a direct correlation to the state of your tissues or the tissue damage. And it's influenced by things such as your thoughts, your belief, um, you know, comorbidities, your situation, your environment, the people that you deal with. Um, mental health's a really big one. Depression and anxiety are two of the biggest risk factors for people that develop chronic pain, for example. And, um, you know, the situation that you're in, you know, your past history, if you're dealing with illness at the time, fatigue, stress levels, sleep levels, all these things influence the pain that your central nervous system will produce um, for, you know, whatever situation it is that we're in at the time. Mm. Um, and, you know, for me, as I said, I said it three times, I'll say it a fourth time, I'm, I'm baffled by the lack of knowledge that people have in, in terms of these basic, uh, um, you know, theories around pain science and how pain works. And I personally believe, you know, chronic pain is a massive, massive issue in our country and all around the world. Is There's lots and lots of people that are dealing with persistent and chronic pain issues. And I think the biggest risk factor for that or the biggest reason why the incidence of chronic pain is so high in our society is because people simply don't understand pain and they weren't educated about it when their pain was at an acute level. Mm-hmm. And then all these different lifestyle factors come into play that sensitize the nervous system and mean 
you know, leads to pain persisting and being chronic for you know many many years for for a lot of people, unfortunately, which is which is pretty scary. And I guess like you know, that it, it's amazing how um how much like you said, different factors do influence pain. And I I do want to go back very briefly to my poorly explained example of my shoulder. Yeah. But just like you said, um, it's that the, the chronic pain that. I was getting from was, was honestly a lack of knowledge in regards to what was causing the pain. Yep. And it, it's just, it, it's, it's something that in society and with, uh, you know, the people who I see and I deal with most days, um, and even the people I'm sure that you deal with as well, um, they don't have that knowledge and we can't turn around and then necessarily immediately say to these people, duh, you're fine. It's just pain pain is pain, you know, it's just nerves coming through the body and, you know, you don't have anything to worry about because these people may have been spent, have may have spent, you know, 30, 40, 50 years of their life believing that they have either an injury or that this certain movement's going to put them in an element of risk. Um, and we've, you know, the big, uh, the big strapping man you are have rolled in and uh, said, hey, actually, no, you're fine. It's just, it's just your body's sensory system. How do you go around explaining to people that pain is a, you know, is, is just a process and not an actual physical thing? Yeah. I mean, I've got about 55 different tangents I want to go off. <laughs> just, mate, we've already had Bulldogs tangents and <laughs> shoulder tangents. Let's go to it, please. Um, I mean, first of all, the thing that we need to realise when we are dealing with pain and educating people about pain is... Pain's very real. It's a very real human experience. And to put it bluntly, pain, pain sucks, right? Pain hurts, um, and we don't want to be in pain. And as I said, pain is our body's alarm system. It's our wonderful protective mechanism of our body that we absolutely need to survive, right? Um, but when we are in pain, we're motivated to get out of it because it sucks, right? It's not a good feeling. So it's not as simple as telling people, oh, it's just in pain. There's no structural damage here. You know, get over it, you'll be right. Mm. Because that downplays their pain experience. And everyone mm. pain, everyone's pain experience is very, very different. Mm. And despite the fact that pain, as I said, may not be necessarily linked to tissue damage, pain is always very, very real. Um, and we need to be tread very, very carefully when we have these conversations. Mm. I suppose the other thing that's um, almost a common, um, what's the word, you know, backlash or, you know, come back to, to these pain science discussions is, oh, is people are saying, oh, so pain's produced by my brain and my nervous system. Is pain all in my head? Are you telling me I'm making it up? No, right? So technically, pain is produced inside your head, in your brain, but we have no conscious control over that, right? And so pain is always very, very real, despite the fact that we're inadvertently saying it's produced by your brain, okay? Now, we spoke a little bit earlier that, you know, there's no direct correlation between pain and tissue damage, and that was probably the case like you've said on reflection of your shoulder injury all those years ago. And it's interesting because some subacromial decompression is uh, is almost an obsolete surgery these days. It was something that was super, super common in years yeah, gone by. Absolutely. Because it probably before we knew as much about, you know, the complexities of pain and these issues is that we'd always look for a structure to blame and people would have scans on their shoulders that would come back with things like, you know, bursitis, which is inflammation of the bursa under that bony part of your shoulder and a decrease in that subacromial space. And despite the fact that there may be a hundred and one other factors causing it, surgeons would go in and try to fix the way that your scan looks by having these surgeries, which you know, may or may not have actually been the cause of your pain. Um, and I suppose something else that's worth considering is that surgeries can actually be a placebo. So, um, which people don't think, you know, people think, you know, medication can be a placebo or, you know, going to get your, you know, your spine rubbed or manipulated can be a bit of a placebo at times. But surgery can be a placebo because if you've got this fixation, this belief that your pain is being caused by this one structural issue, whether it is or whether it's not, and you, a surgeon goes in and actually tells you that they fixed that, well, then all of a sudden that's going to decrease the sensitivity and the threat in your body and you might feel a hell of a lot better. Or it will give you a period of you know offloading from the things that were really aggravating in the first place where you're focusing on rehab and it might actually be that period of offloading post-surgery in the rehab that gets the result rather than the surgery itself. Yeah. And once again, that's not to downplay orthopedic surgeons who are fantastic people um, and you know, really, really smart people and they're really, really important in our industry. But that subacromial decompression is an example. is a great one where I think a lot and a lot and a lot of those surgeries that have been done in the past where probably the structural issue hasn't been so important. Mm. Um, I will go on one more little tangent, mate, if you don't mind. Well, just before, just before you say that, I think it's also important to remember um, a lot of the people we deal with, um, they often have a hundred different voices um, yeah. telling them different, you know, or giving them a different take on their pain. 
with her injury. Um, and this is one thing that, you know, you mentioned my mother before. She's, um, she's got a fantastic uh, um, exercise physio that she sees, and he's great. Sam Whaley um, works out of Woodshed in, uh, in Brighton, and he's um, an absolute weapon. Um, she uh, listens, you know, vehemently to Sam, and she listens to yourself. And the two of you have very, you know, similar viewpoints on a lot of what she does. Yeah. But it's when she gets a, you know, a, a, another view from, say, a surgeon or from a, a GP or something. Um, and this is, again, going back to, you know, um, someone like my mother who doesn't have any idea about what pain is or what issues she's dealing with. And just for the, you know, for the listeners, she's dealing with, um, a, she's got a labral tear and then she fell over in the street and broke her shoulder a couple of months ago. So she's got a couple of things. But when she has a hundred different voices, she doesn't know what to believe. And it's a huge issue that I see with people who come to me. Um, and often new clients will come to me and the first, a lot of the, you know, the, um, first, the first question I ask a lot of people is, are you seeing any other, um, you know, allied health professionals? And they, um, you know, if, if they uh, are, it's often about three or four. Mm. And they've got a masseuse, they've got a Maya, they've got a chiropractor, and then they've got a physio, or they've got their, their bloody mate, you know, who's, uh, who's got crystals and, uh, and is lighting up the incense. And I think it's important that, you know, you listen to one, maybe a second opinion, um, but you listen to one or two people max because they're going to give you, they're going to stop that noise. And... It's it's so frustrating for me when people go, oh well, you know, I'm going to hire a, a trainer, and I'm not saying that I have the, uh, you know, obviously the answers for um, all these people, um, and I often refer out immediately. Um, but if they're then not going to listen to, um, you know, the people that they are paying money to, to help them, and you know, you've probably seen that yourself when you have people come in here and say, hey, you know, I need your help with this. But, whoa, hang on, my chiropractor or my, you know, my myo says this and I can imagine how frustrating that would be for you. It's one of the hardest parts of my job when, like you said, people come with pre-existing ideas about their issues that have, they've been told by another practitioner. And, and that's all well and good, but if I professionally don't agree with what they've been told, yeah. it's a really, really hard sell yep. to try to, you know, basically, you know, undo Yep undo that you know all that education that may not be the best thing for them and try to you know persuade them that might be the right way um, and who's to say that you know I'm more knowledgeable than them yeah. or their car or their GP or whatever but as I said it's uh, it's a really challenging thing when like you said people have multiple voices well the problem I see a lot of the time and this is just going off your point is that a lot of people put surgeons um, and even sometimes funnily enough GPs at the top of the pedestal mm. so you'll have a physiotherapist like yourself who has probably a, a you know a far better understanding than most of these people mm. in regards to ailments or in regards to you know the sensation that they're feeling mm. and they're turning around listening to surgeons who often are this is this is just obviously on a general sense a lot of them are older and haven't studied for a very long time mm. and have reached a point where you know they they're going off you know things from potentially, you know, like we say, subacromial decompression is old surgery. It's one that's been around for a while. It's not necessarily, it's kind of redundant now, but it's one that a lot of surgeons will just push to. Mm. You know, we, we've spoken about knees, you and I, in the past, mm. um, and how sometimes the people just go, oh, cool, surgery, without the modern understanding of how you can actually deal with these things. Mm. I think um, a really good orthopedic surgeon is one that will use surgery as a last resort. Yep. Whereas a lot of surgeons want to operate because yep. that's what they do. Yep. You know, just like bankers want to bake bread because that's what they do. Or yeah, you know, absolutely. a physio might want to rub someone because, you know, we're just glorified masseuses. Whoa, 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 whoa. You want to rub someone? You know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> a second. You know my point, right? A really good orthopedic <laughs> surgeon will Guys, it. come on. Chris wants to rub someone. JY. <laughs> <laughs> if, anyone, any, if anyone wants to come on the uh, podcast and, uh, and get rubbed, my point, was, <laughs> my point was, surgery is really important for a lot of people, but it's definitely a last resort because pain is so multifactorial. And what I also think is really important as well is generally this hierarchy of people that are trusted. You know, it will go a surgeon, a GP, an allied health professional such as a physio, and then a personal trainer in that order. The actual amount of influence that we can have on people is almost flipped on its head because a personal trainer might spend... 
three or four hours with their client every week. Whereas a physio might spend half an hour with their client every week. Whereas a GP might see their client for 15 minutes once a month. Yeah. An orthopedic surgeon Great might see their point. client for three minutes once every six months. Do you know what I mean? So if we're actually educated about this stuff properly, the influence that you and I can have can often be far greater than, you know, quote unquote, our superiors. Yeah. 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 Um, you asked me a little bit earlier about how else we go about explaining this these type of concepts to people, and it still can be quite a confusing area. I like to tell a few stories, um, and I'm going to share a couple, mate. Now, if you don't mind, as we touched on, pain severity does not always equal um, you know injury severity or tissue pathology, and um, a couple of examples that are we can often experience quite extreme and severe pain when there's a, a very small amount of tissue damage, and the perfect example is a paper cut. Right, paper cuts, you just barely grazing the surface of your skin. It's absolutely no danger to your quality of life or to your job or to your work or anything, but bloody hell, they hurt, oh. right? Um, and on the contrary to that, there can be these really serious you know, conditions such as you know, life-threatening diseases, cancers, which can potentially cause you know, all sorts of systemic and structural damage that they go unnoticed in their body because their body doesn't produce pain. Mm. Right. Um, context is also very dependent. I'm going to give two more really quick examples. I know I'm going on about this a little bit, mate. But there's a really famous story. It's actually a true story of a tradie on the worksite um, who put a nail from a nail gun straight through his foot, straight through his work boot. Anyway, this bloke has shot this nail gun through his foot. He's collapsed on the floor. He's in all sorts of pain. Right. He, I think his workmate put him in an ambulance. He's gone to hospital. He's had this green whistle. You know, an hour or two later, a doctor's managed to slowly pull this nail out of his foot and take his boot off. And they've actually found that the nail has gone straight between his toes and not actually pierced his skin or his tissues at all, right? This bloke was in extreme pain, okay? And now you've sort of laughed and giggled there, mate. I've seen your, your face light up on our Zoom screen. But um, the reality of this is he's looked down to his foot. He's seen this nail through his foot. And pain is produced by a nervous system, right? So his brain has concluded that based on the visual evidence, that has caused a significant amount of tissue damage. So his body needs to protect him by causing all this pain. Right, it was only later that he realised that that caused zero tissue damage and that pain settles down. Mm. Right, I think that's a that's a true story, and I think that's an mm. awesome one. And once again, to the contrary of that, is there's hundreds and hundreds of stories about soldiers in the war in years gone by who have literally been running away from gunfire or danger with either a bullet wound that they haven't known about or literally their arms being blown off and they haven't been known about it but because mm. they're running away from danger. Their life is on the line. Mm. That is not a threat to them at the moment. All their body, all their nervous system cares about is surviving. And so if they've got a bullet wound in their leg or their back or their arms literally being blown off, they don't even know about it until half an hour later. Yeah. Because at the time, that's not a threat to them. Whereas right now, if your arm gets blown off, mate, it's a bloody threat and it's a big deal to you. So pain is so context dependent and there's so many different things that influence it. Oh, it's, mate, like going to a football example. Um, I promise I won't mention the Bulldogs here, just quickly. You just did. Undefeated. <laughs> Since last week, um, <laughs> since the podcast, um, since Wayne Adelaide, basically <laughs> hey, come on, we're Melbourne, all right. Everyone was going on about them. Anyway, um, when you're uh, you often see people on the football field um, who've uh, had a pretty bad break, or you know potentially they've uh, they've busted their knee, uh, broken a finger, and they'll say, "Don't look." Um, and often that's you know I, I think Isaac Quainall is a really good example mm. a couple of weeks ago man had an absolutely savage gash through his shins mm. and uh, he was being told by the medicos I think he did look in the end <laughs> pretty sure he did look I, uh, I was talking to my, uh, my housemate at the time about it and I was like oh yeah he's seen it now um, and he, um, he was told don't look because the moment you look that's when the adrenaline kicks in um, and that's when you then notice, oh shit, things aren't quite right. It's the it's that fight it's that fight or flight response. Suddenly that you know things are pretty uh, pretty grim here. So you know, like you said, it's uh, it's so it's not necessarily as simple as you know you're hurt or you're not. There's so many other factors to it, and I think you know that that leads me to my next question, and that is you know if we are in a uh, in a state of you know pain, whether that's real or not. Well, sorry, we say pain is real, but whether we say that that is a you know is a physical thing or a manifestation of an injury, yeah. what um what pain should we train through, and you know what pain shouldn't we train through? Yeah, so I think first of all, it's important to know that complete rest is almost, if not never actually needed when it comes to any sort of pain or injury, okay? Relative rest is often important, but complete rest is often not, um, which means that oftentimes if we are injured or we are in some sort of pain, it is okay to continue training through it um, with some sort of modification, 
Okay, so first of all, just pain, you know, like you said, you know, should we push through it or should we stop training? Well, most of the time we, we should not stop training and we should find ways mm-hmm. around it, okay? And there's so many different ways that we can modify our training to, um, you know, to basically calm shit down and, and mean things aren't going to be painful. Mm-hmm. Um, now, how much pain is it okay to push through? Well, once again, pain is... Pain's a subjective thing, right? There's no, there's plenty of objective tests in the medical world for, you know, you can get an x-ray and look at the degeneration in a joint or you can get an MRI and look at how torn a muscle or a tendon is, but pain we can't actually measure on a scan and pain is a very real experience, but it's subjective, okay? And what I generally use with my clients is a simple zero to 10 scale where 10 out of 10 is an absolute extreme, excruciating amount of pain like a shark's just bitten your leg off mm. and zero out of 10 is absolutely nothing. And generally as a rule of thumb, I'd say, if we're training through something that's around a three out of 10 or below, then it's gonna be safe and acceptable and you're probably not gonna do yourself any more harm mm. on a couple of conditions. And one of the conditions is that that pain doesn't build up and get and get any worse through the exercise activity type of training that you're pushing through. Within 24 to 48 hours, that settles back to baseline. Yeah. Okay, now what I will say is that zero to 10 scale is very, very subjective. And I say a three out of 10 for most people is probably an acceptable level mm. as long as it fits in with those conditions. Um, however, you get the you know you get the heroes that walk in and say oh, I've got such a high pain threshold, and you know my one out of ten is someone else's ten out of ten. Mm. It's like well, come down, mate. Like yeah, you know, it's probably not the case. Um, but you also get people on the other end of the scale, and I've had clients, and I'll, I'll you know they'll be sitting sitting down in the chair, and you know with a very straight face and a relaxed posture, and I'll say oh you know do you have any pain at rest right now? They say yeah I do, and I'll say how much pain do you have right now? And they look at me with a straight face and say they've got a nine out of ten pain, and I'm like well. You're not in a nine out of ten <laughs> because you're sitting there in a chair very comfortably, you're smiling to me, you know, you're not in hospital or screaming in agony. Okay, so it's a very subjective scale, yeah. but, but they're generally gonna be the rules of thumb. Um, and as I said, we should generally be modifying the things that we are doing to make things less painful. You know, if that's running, for example, we can, you know, rather than completely stop running, we might be able to decrease the frequency, decrease the speed, um, alternate between running and walking for short periods of time, change your cadence, mm. um, change the surface, change mm. your running shoes, change some sort of variable which might make it a little bit less sensitive to do that activity. In the gym, you know, there's plenty of examples in a squat, for example, if the squat's causing you pain in the knees or your hips, well, you can modify that squat by mm. reducing the overall volume if it's a fatigue yeah. issue, by reducing the range of motion if it's a depth issue by, you know, if you're getting shoulder pain in a squat, you might be able to, you know, move from a low bar to a high bar off to a high bar to a safety bar to a safety bar to a goblet squat. Um, you know, there's so many different ways that we can modify things that we're already doing to get, continue to get a training response and continue to do the things that we want to be doing without aggravating our injury or our pain condition. But obviously it's completely dependent on the person. And what you said there is subjective. I think that's a, again, a really, really good point as well. And I think the beautiful part about uh, subjectivity is you can, educate the client on um you know what is causing that you know so say you've you've asked them to rate their pain at a 10 um someone who is more educated in pain is going to be able to give you you know a more honest answer than someone who has absolutely no idea how pain works they're going to give you their eights nines and tens for small little niggles whereas you know once they have an idea of how you know how serious something, well, sorry, not serious, but how, you know, pain does work, they can give you a, you know, a more objective feed, more objective feedback. And it's similar to, say, an RPE scale. So if anyone who doesn't know, uh, the rate of perceived exertion, exertion, exhaustion. So when you... Rating of what? The rate... <laughs> perceived exertion what? The rate... <laughs> no, yeah, I've absolutely lost it. The RPE <laughs> scale... Is basically a scale out of one to ten for the difficulty of an exercise. Or love, how we... I love you didn't try to pronounce that word again. Exhaustion. Exertion. So exhaustion. <laughs> please, uh, Sorry, please, please, please edit this out, Chris. We're not editing this, James. No, no, people say you're human. No, no. <laughs> say exhaustion. So when exertion. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Um, <laughs> sorry. Go sorry, on. you've absolutely derailed me. I've completely forgotten whether the word's one or the other. And uh, if you're rating an exercise difficulty out of 1 to 10, yep. um, someone who has more of a history or an education regarding training is going to be able to give you a, um, a far better um, reading to the difficulty of something. Yep. So if you're saying, you know, what's a 9 out of 10 squat, you know, that's what we want to hit, and you're giving that to someone in the first couple of weeks of training, well, they've got no an idea of what nine out of ten really is but if you're giving that to someone who's been competitively powerlifting for years well they'll be sure as hell able to give you that nine pretty easily or tell you where they are on the scale of one to ten um and that again that's just education that's experience and education and that's why i try to encourage people when they begin by rating pain 
out of one to 10. So yeah. if someone does come to me and they say that they have an issue with, uh, you know, a, sp- a particular movement or a particular, uh, you know, a set of exercises or that we use, I guess, a set of exercises as almost our barometer for progress, um, over time, I'll often see their, you know, again, inverted commas with my fingers, their, you know, RPE of um, pain um, changing very, very, very quickly as they start to progress in their training um, or as they start to become more experienced and educated. And I think, you know, for anybody listening here who is a coach or who is a, is a physio or any sort of, a, you know, health professional, I think it's important to encourage and to educate clients. Yeah. And even for uh, the people listening who are just uh, training uh, themselves, I think if you can sort of get out of the habit of, you know, well, it's a 9 out of 10 right now, so the world's on fire, you know, learn more about why, you know, particular things are, you know, putting you, uh, I guess, at that rating or why you feel it is a 9 out of 10. Like you said, there are modifications, there are things we can change. Um, There's always a way to work around these things. Complete rest is not the go. Um, That's a great point as well. 100%, mate. I think... um Look, I think we've covered a hell of a lot of really good information there. We've got a few more segments to get through. Hundred tangents. Um, I will. What I will just finish on is saying that you know education is the single most important part of both my profession and yours. Yeah. Um, we like to do it. So if you don't have any more questions on this sort of stuff, slide into our DMs at Chilling the Fat underscore Podcast or CB Physiotherapy on Instagram or Equinox PS, PS Performance yes. Society on Instagram. We'll be happy to. We'll be happy to answer your questions. And speaking of answering questions, we're moving on to the Q and A. Yeah, we. We've got a couple of questions on our social media feed from the last week, um, and I've got a couple for you to start with, mate. So, Parker Young, really big fan of the show. G'day, Parker. Yeah, the big Uh, dog. What would you say to anyone wanting to becoming a personal, wanting to become a personal trainer? Where should they start, and how should they differentiate themselves from other PTs? Great question. Um, I'm super biased here. and I'm probably at the risk of alienating us. Uh, I'm not a massive fan of the uh, the traditional PT courses there are out of it, um, and I'm sure that goes with uh, without saying. You know, I'm not going to go on a tangent again. We've been on thirty of them today. Um, but you first of all just need to get your cert three, cert four, so that you're qualified. Um, the next step, and obviously, sorry, do the course and you know all that shit. Um, but the the actual I guess best place to start is to find a mentor and to actually find someone who um, is sort of down the line of where you want to be in the industry and JPS do an absolutely brilliant mentorship Melbourne Strength Culture do fantastic mentorships um, I think there are a few really good presenters in that JPS mentorship actually um, Look, I can name I can name a whole heap of good presenters, but there's this weird like physio dude who, you know, I think he just uh, he teaches people how to rub uh, and you know about how shit Darcy Ford is. Um, Whoa! <laughs> complete unnecessary attack on Darcy Ford, who's a fantastic backup rucker for you. There you go. There you go. But no, the uh, the JPS mentorship is a really good one. Um, but even aside from mentorships, actually finding a um, you know a coach or a uh, person in the industry that you like, and I know you've had a few um, physios have come under you. Um, I've had a few coaches who've come under me, um, and about sort of not not trying to you know I guess teach them exactly what you do, but sort of guide them along along their journey. So. That was a long answer, but find a um, find a, a resource or a um, you know a coach a business that you like. Learn what they're doing. Um, mentor them. Sh- uh, get mentored by them. Shadow them. Complete yeah. a mentorship, but a proper one, not a cert three, cert four by you know one of the government sort of or the one of the uh, you know the health government, whatever you call it, uh, sort of little uh, puppets. I think it's uh, yeah. I think they're all a bit. Average and then to differentiate yourself, uh, learn, 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 and learn some more because you uh, you're in an industry where people are generally quite uh, dogmatic in their approach, and I think probably the biggest uh, biggest way to differentiate yourself is just to be learned. There is there's there's starting to be a lot more coaches out there who are you know learning that learning without using that word again. Uh, that the more they know. Uh, is not necessarily going to be what sets them up. It's not about you know what you know and how much you know, but it's about how you use it. But having more knowledge allows you to have more, you know, there's more you can apply and there's more you can work with with your clients. 
yeah. and that helps you to find, I guess, a, uh, a particular demographic that you like to work with. So anyway, that was a, a really long bloody answer. Um, let's uh, move on to the next question. This one is from LDA. So Mel has asked, when is the best day or time to do strength training when you run four times a week? So Chris, please. Yeah, well, this completely depends on what your priorities are. So if your priorities are running, which I know for a fact Mel Dianis are. Um, Absolutely. G'day, Mel. Massive fan of the show. So strength training, resistance training is a great way to prevent injuries and keep you really safe and healthy when you're running. And so this is important that you, you do complement and find time to, to put strength training or resistance training into your week. As a runner, it's going to go a long way to keep you healthy. Um, when to do this can sometimes be a struggle, but, but what we need to think is if running is your priority, we always need to make sure that you're fresh and you're recovered when you're running. So if you're going to do them both on the same day and running is your priority, run first and do you know some sort of light resistance training later because you don't want to be carrying the fatigue or the DOMS delayed onset muscle soreness of your strength work into your runs. Um, you know, if, you, if you've got it at an intensity that's okay enough that you're sort of responding and recovering within 24 hours, well, then you can just simply do it on alternate days. If you have to do it on the same day for any reason, then as a runner, I'd be running first. Whereas for a lifter, for a powerlifter, for example, if they're doing additional cardio, for example, to burn calories, well, then, you know, they're probably going to want to do that after their session if they're going to do it on the same day and maybe running one wouldn't even be the best thing for them. Maybe a bike or a swim might be something more beneficial. Um, but yeah, structure around your week. Make sure that you're recovered and make sure you're prioritizing the thing that is your priority. That's such a good answer. Um, Dan Gillen, good friend of mine from Spiral Physiotherapy out in Preston. G'day, Dan. Shout out to the Allied Health. Danny Boyd. At the moment. Um, how much fat is too much fat to chew, James? <sighs> I don't think the limit exists, to be honest. Uh, depends if it fit your macros. Fair. Um, moving right along. Chris Kano, the client of both mine and yours. And oh, yeah, good, friend client. The, good friend of the podcast. A good friend of the group. Um, thoughts on the correlation between mental health and exercise? Well, Keiko. Um, yeah, I think you remember Keiko. It's just a little inside joke there for you, me, and him. Um, I actually don't know what that means. Uh, Straight yeah, up my head. Moving on. Um, <laughs> correlation between mental health and exercise. Uh, it, that is actually a great question, Chris. Um, we're going to be speaking about that next week. So we're actually, we've got a whole podcast planned um, where we're going to discuss pretty much what you just asked um, in regards to you know, how important exercise is for our mental health and then going a little bit more into the nitty gritty of the, uh, of the two. So we're going to not answer that question as a cop out because we're going to go real hardcore into it uh, next week. So Can't please do, uh, do stay tuned for that. Make sure you're subscribed and, uh, you know, to our Iraqi friend out there, please don't forget uh, if you can get a, a few more of your mates to give us five stars. And our um, French friends, and our French. Sorry, I've got to forget. I've got to forget. Four countries, just keep just the, uh, the Asian Oceanic sort of area <laughs> at the moment. Um, but yeah, that's uh, that's going to be uh, in your ear holes next week. So our last question here is uh, from Gain Fame, and Gain Fame asks, "Do you want more followers? DM us, Chris." Yes, please. We want more followers. Awesome. I'm um, hopefully <laughs> so. Gain fame's great, but if we can get gain sponsor next week to slide into our DMs, uh, that'd be awesome because we still need a sponsor. Uh, anyone wants to sponsor us? Great yeah. question there, Gain Fame. Thanks for mission wraps, maybe. Um, All right. Now, next segment, quote of the week, JY. As we've discussed, you're a very wise man, mate, and I'm looking forward to hear the quote that you've got for us this week. <laughs> This is, uh, this is my, uh, my favorite segment because it means I get to talk. Um, this week's quote of the week. It comes from uh, Dale Carnegie's book, uh, How to Win Friends and Influence People. And another great book. Um, I have nothing more to say. Um, <laughs> I'll, I'll say something. I'll confirm. It's a good book. <laughs> I feel, honestly, that, that's basically one of the books that I feel just, you know, when you, are, when you get into business um, and as you are... Uh, as you sort of start to uh, get into the wide world, you have to read it. It's it's a brilliant uh, it's a brilliant book. And can I just interrupt very quickly again? That book was written in what, like the 1910s or 1920s? I think it was the 1920s. It's yeah. still so relevant today, but can someone like write an updated version for like the I think there is a, century? I think there actually is an updated version. Oh, well, it's just not okay. very good. No, no, no. I actually think it's a fantastic read for those who haven't listened, but if there could be somehow modernised and, and have examples from, you know, now, not 100 years ago, it'd be amazing. No, I, um, I think I Googled whether there was one. And, um, you know, because Google is the... Uh, 
the everything of uh, of everything there uh, there apparently is, but it's right. not very good. But okay. sorry, anyway, continue. back to my quote. <laughs> sorry. So from da- Dale Carnegie's How to Win Friends and Influence People, a man convinced against his will is of the same opinion still. So there are uh, the what, the reason I wanted to bring this quote a, uh, about today is just in regards to what we're speaking about pain um, and education regarding pain, um, which is a big. Big favourite thing of us on this podcast, education. I haven't noticed. Yes, in case anybody hadn't noticed, or as the Spanish would say, education. So the uh, the reason I bring this up is because when we have someone, or uh, you know, someone comes to us with certain ailments or things that they are they inherently believe, there's no point trying to uh, argue with these people, and there's no point trying to uh, trying to push your bias or your knowledge again important to have knowledge there's no point trying to push your knowledge upon someone work with people basically no one's going to uh no one's going to listen to you if you're trying to convince them okay and i uh i've always stuck with this quote this one's been on my list for a very long time because i think it's uh i think it's very relevant like you said 1920s was when that book was written um it still holds very true to this day um chris Please, we have a, uh, a joke to take us out. I um, the had, floor is yours. I've had some fantastic, excellent feedback on the two jokes we've had so far, JY. From your uh, your mum, your dad, and your miso. Uh, no, they all think I'm not funny. And we also had excellent feedback. We actually had, uh, we did say at the start, we've had some fantastic feedback on the first couple of podcasts. So please give us anything good, bad, ugly, indifferent. Let us know what you think. Um, we'd love to hear from you, and we really appreciate it. Just share, yeah, just a message, send it through. Let us know how you're uh, finding the podcast. Um, but give <laughs> it five stars. Five star reviews would be really fantastic. Likes, do all sickness. the good stuff. I bought dog sickness. Oh Jesus. Okay. Um, but yeah, a joke to finish, JY. What did the granddad say as his last words just before he kicked the bucket? What did he say, Chris? Hey, grandson, how far do you think I can kick this bucket? How far did he kick it? All advice is general in nature. For any physical health concerns, please see a trusted health professional.